Okay, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 13. And while you're turning, I should tell you that uh, I have the best mom. I really do. I have, I have an absolutely wonderful mom. I, I never wondered if my mom loved me absolutely and unconditionally. She cared for all of my physical needs. Spiritually, she cared for me. Emotionally, she cared for me. Even when she was disciplining me, I knew that she still loved me. But sometimes my mom was completely unreasonable. It was my responsibility to clean my room, and so I would clean my room to a very excellent standard, and my mom would come in and say, no, that's not acceptable, because for some reason she didn't like it when I cleaned it by just shoving everything under the bed. And she said, no, no, that's not clean yet. And I'm like, you can't see it. It's under, well, mostly under the bed. And no, she was not pleased. It wasn't acceptable to my mom. Now, with 40-something years of perspective, I look back and I realize she was mostly right and I was mostly wrong, that... <laughs> You know, really, the issue was very simple, and it was this. I didn't want to submit. I wanted my will. I did not want to bend my will to her will. I wanted my will. I didn't really want to clean my room at all. If I had to clean it, I wanted to get it done very quickly and and just to a minimal standard. I did not want to submit to her authority. And that wasn't the only instance when I struggled to submit. And even as an adult... An adult, from time to time, I don't want to submit. I wrestle with it. I believe that is because for each and every one of us, we are born with a stubbornness that is a result of the fall. It is fundamental to the fall of humanity that we really don't want to submit. Adam and Eve were placed within a hierarchy in the garden. And God was over them. And Satan came and tempted them and said, no, actually, God doesn't need to be in charge of you. You can be like God. And they believed it. Because they didn't want to submit to God's authority. They wanted to be in charge of themselves. And so humanity, every single one of us, for our entire lives, in some form or fashion, in some relationship, we will struggle with bending our will to the authority who is over us. So this morning, we're going to talk about that lovely topic of submission. Submission to authority. I want you to read with me, beginning in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Paul says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Specifically, we're going to look at our role as those who are submissive to governing authorities. But if you are visiting with us for the first time, maybe you traveled all the way from Nigeria or India, and you're just kind of jumping in on this series, we've been studying Romans for the entire year. We've covered the first 12 chapters. The first 11 chapters are very heavily weighted with theology. It's about the righteousness of God. God is right. He is the standard in all that he does and all that he is. All of his actions are right. His words are right. His feelings are right. He is right. But we don't measure up to that righteous standard of God. And so we're born separated. We live our lives separated until we believe in Jesus Christ. And the moment we believe in Jesus Christ, God places us in right relationship with him because he places us into Christ. And Christ is right with God, so we can be right with God. That's possible because Jesus Christ died for our sins, died to remove that barrier of separation. So that when we believe, the separation is removed, and we are once again placed into right relationship with God. We we don't earn our way back to God. We receive that right relationship simply as a gift. 
It's received by faith. We reach out and say, God, thank you for the gift of rightness with you through Jesus Christ. I believe. Romans 1 through 11 covers the righteousness of God. In chapter 12, Paul turns a corner and he begins to apply this principle. What does it look like specifically when God's righteousness is reflected out through us? And we said a few weeks ago, the chapter 12 verses 1 through 2 is kind of a, a summary statement or a synthesis of everything that's going to happen, that he's going to talk about in 12 through 16. And he makes this first imperative, present yourself to God. It's sacrificial language. It is literally put yourself up on the altar. Make yourself an offering to God. Don't hold anything back. Don't present yourself to the world because if you do, you will be squeezed into the world's mold and you will look just like the world. You won't reflect the righteousness of God. You'll reflect the world. But as you present yourself to God, you make yourself available as an offering, as a sacrifice, as worship to God, then God transforms you into the very image of Christ. And when people see you, they see the attitudes of Jesus. They see the personality of Jesus. They hear words that Jesus would speak. They see a reflection of God's own character. And Paul, after verse 2, begins to apply that in several very specific areas. First, he says, use your gifts to serve one another. Because as you serve one another with these spiritual gifts... People see a reflection of the power and the personality of God through your relationships. As you love one another, and you think first of the other and not of yourself. And even as you love your enemies, because God loves his enemies. And God has sacrificed his son even for his enemies, because we once were enemies of God. All these things serve as a reflection of God. And now he's going to give a fourth application, and that is submit to governing authorities. Because the rest of the world doesn't want to submit. And as you submit... You show them a very different attitude toward governing authorities. You reflect the character of God and you reflect your trust in God as the sovereign over all. So read with me again, chapter 13, verse 1. Paul says, Every person is to be in subjection to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So, what does it mean to submit? Well, first we should note, when Paul says submit to governing authorities, he's not talking about government in the abstract, government as a, as a concept or a theory. He's not talking about all governments in the world. He's talking about your governing authorities, my governing authorities. So federal, state, and local, your president, your governor, your representatives, your senators, your mayor, your city councilman, your police— your firemen, these are the authorities God has placed in your life. And he says, submit to them. It's interesting, if you look throughout the New Testament, submission is an extremely common theme. Because it's a fundamental character issue for us. We're told that slaves are to submit to masters, wives to their husbands, younger men to the elders within the church, all believers to the elders within the church, all of us to one another. Angelic beings are to submit to Christ. The church and all things created are to submit to Christ. All submit to God. Even Jesus submits to God. And then finally, citizens are to submit to government. So what does it mean for us to submit? Obviously, every single one of us is in some relationship that we are called to submit. Nobody escapes this command. So what does it mean for us practically? Literally, The word submission means to put or to place under the authority of another. 
So when I submit myself to you, I am bending my will to your will. I am allowing your will to rule over my will. I'm submitting myself to you. It's an act of the will. So here in this context, it's a voluntary choice. Paul's not talking about governments subjugating their people, okay, forcing their will upon their people. He's talking about a choice that you and I make to put our own wills underneath the authority of another. So it's not subjugation in this context. It is a willing choice to submit. Uh, this also includes uh, not just behavior, but also our words and our attitudes. Probably heard about the little boy who got disciplined. Wasn't me. But um, he got stuck in the corner in a chair. His mom said, sit in that chair until you get your attitude in line. And so he sat down in the chair and he said, you know, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. Okay? That's, that's not submission. Right? It's not just the posture of the body. It's also the attitude of the heart. It's the attitude of the heart. So to submit means basically to recognize, respect, and obey those who are in authority over you. Recognize, respect, and obey those who are in authority over you. Peter gives the same command. 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Submit. I have discovered that sometimes this is really easy. When, when I have voted for a particular elected official, when I agree with them philosophically, I like their policies, when I agree with that person in authority over me, when I trust them, when I believe they have my best interest in mind, when I agree with every decision they make, I find it very easy to submit. Don't worry about all those instances. That's not what Paul's talking about. What do we do when we, when we don't agree? When something rises up within us, which is our own will, and we want to resist, we want to have our own way. How do we respond then? How do we respond when, in fact, we don't agree? I want you to think for a moment about the setting of the book of Romans. Who is the authority when Paul wrote the book of Romans. Remember, he wrote to Roman Christians. They lived in Rome. They lived under the authority directly of the Caesar. Who was the Caesar at this point in time when Paul wrote? Probably Nero. And Paul says, submit. Let me read to you a brief description of Nero. One historian wrote, Nero's rule is often associated with tyranny and extravagance. He is known for a number of executions, including those of his mother, And stepbrother, that's really bad, especially on Mother's Day. Nero was reportedly unsatisfied with his marriage to Octavia and entered into an affair with Claudia, a former slave, and then had his wife Octavia executed. To consolidate power, Nero executed a number of people in 62 and 63 AD, including his rivals, Paulus, Rebellius, and Faustus. According to Suetonius, Nero showed neither discrimination nor moderation in putting to death whomsoever he pleased during this period. According to tradition, he was the emperor during the time of the executions of both Paul and Peter. And Paul says, submit. Peter says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Something wells up inside of me and says, certainly there must be an exception to this rule, or many exceptions. In fact, biblically speaking, there's, there's only one exception to the rule. Okay, just one exception. 
The exception is when the authority directly contradicts a clear command of God. When the authority commands us to do something that God has clearly commanded us not to do, or vice versa. Okay? A clear command of God that is contradicted by an authority. Because God has created a hierarchy of authority within his world, within his universe. And it's God overall. But God has ordained human governments to fulfill certain functions that we'll talk about in a moment. And then he has placed us underneath those governments. When governing authorities usurp the authority of God, then yes, we have a responsibility to disobey. To disobey. Fortunately, that doesn't happen for us a lot in this culture, but there are some really clear biblical illustrations. Let me give you just a couple of those. In Exodus chapter 1, it says, Then the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, spoke to the Hebrew midwives who were helping give birth to the children. When you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth... If it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but they let the boys live. In other words, they understood that they lived in a hierarchy of authority and that God was over all, and that the earthly ruler was commanding them to do something God had said no. They were usurping the authority of God, and so they disobeyed the earthly ruler and they obeyed God. Another illustration is Daniel chapter 6. Daniel is told, don't pray to God. Don't pray to anyone else except the king. Don't pray. And so what did Daniel do? He went into his house. He opened up the windows. And just as had been his habit, three times a day, he got on his knees in the sight of all people and prayed. Respectfully, respectfully disobeying authority. And then submitting to the punishment of being thrown into the lion's den. Not knowing if God would rescue him or not rescue him, but still choosing to honor God, seeing God as his ultimate authority. One other illustration from the New Testament, Acts chapter 5, Peter and John are commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus. It says, the high priest questioned them saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And so they continued preaching. And then they submitted themselves to the punishment for preaching the name of Jesus. Again, fortunately, in the culture that we live in right now, where there is well-established rule of law, we don't often bump up against this. But I will tell you, as Christians living in the United States of America, we should expect more conflict. We should expect more conflict. I'm going to give you one illustration. Uh, Right now at Vanderbilt University, there's a great conflict going on between the administration of Vanderbilt University and Christian student groups on campus. Vanderbilt University administration is telling the Christian student groups, you need to change your charter. You need to change your constitution. You can't require officers in your Christian organization to be Christians. You can't require officers in your Christian organization to sign a statement of faith. You cannot require that. And if you do require it, you will no longer be a recognized campus organization. You'll have to get off of campus. You can't use our facilities. You can't advertise. You can't do any of that. So the Christian organizations on campus are respectfully disagreeing. We live in a democracy. We live in a setting where we can respectfully disagree. And so lawyers have been hired, and they're arguing their case that this is not acceptable. They're fighting against the administration's decision, but they're doing so in a respectful manner. And you probably say to yourself, well, you know, that's Vanderbilt University. That's, you know, that's the immoral SEC, right? I mean, it's all those pagan universities over in the SEC. Fortunately for the SEC, here comes Texas A&M University, right? Right? 
guess what? We've had exactly the same issue at Texas A&M University. You just may not have known about it. And it's been resolved so far, but Christians, our values will not always coincide with the government. There will be conflict. But what our students have done, our student leaders on campus, is that they have respectfully disagreed. It may come to the point that they have to submit, that they have to say, yes, we will either change our charter or we will go off campus. And our prayer for those student leaders is they will do so in a way that honors authority, even as they submit and even as they leave, if it comes to that. So we submit to authority, not because we always agree, not because they're always worthy, but because God has placed them there. In fact, Paul gives us two very strong motivations for submission to authority. I want you to read with me in chapter 3, 13, chapter 13, verse 1 again. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. That's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? Let's read it again. Every person, not most people, every person is to be in subjection to governing authorities. For there's no authority, well, no, most authority, no, there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. All authority has been placed by God, or at the very least, allowed by God. Whether they were elected, whether they bribed their way into a position of authority, whether there was a military coup, at least we can say God allowed that authority to be in place. Because God is the sovereign ruler over all. Now, authorities don't always acknowledge God, and they don't always obey God, and sometimes those authorities are removed. But God has, at least for a period of time, allowed them to take authority over us. I'll give you a couple illustrations. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, after being humbled by God, acknowledged the Most High, he is the ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it, that is, his authority, over whomever he wishes. Now, Nebuchadnezzar struggled with this issue because he was an exceedingly arrogant man. And so from time to time, he would be humbled and he would acknowledge the authority of God through the influence of Daniel and others. But then he would rebel against the authority of God. And ultimately, God said, you know, you can't be ruler any longer. And he turned his authority over to the Medes and the Persians. But he acknowledged the principle that God is in charge of all things. And he moves rulers in and he moves rulers out. Romans chapter 9 that we just studied recently, quoting, Paul's quoting the book of Exodus, and it says, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you. What's he talking about? He's talking about Pharaoh's resistance to God. God raised up Pharaoh and put him in place, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh committed all kinds of evil against God's own people. Why? So that God could demonstrate a greater righteousness and justice through Pharaoh for that period of time. All authority is placed by God. Take you back to 1 Peter again. Chapter 2. Submit yourselves, therefore, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. What Peter means by that is for the Lord's sake because we acknowledge God is the one who has ordained authority over us. Now, interestingly, you know, in, in a democracy, 
we're in a position where we're under authority, but we also hold the authority accountable because democracy is ruled by the people. And so we have a, a tension in our relationship. We must submit, we must also hold accountable. But notice what Paul says here, chapter 13, verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. To resist authority is actually to resist God. Because God has placed authority over us. Which raises the question, so, should we ever overthrow a government? Uh, Becky Birch and I were just chatting about this about two minutes before the sermon. Kind of hard to cover this topic. It's a huge topic. And I'm going to acknowledge right now, you're not all going to agree with me on this topic. And I can't cover everything that even I think on this topic in 35 minutes. There are so many specific instances. And right now I'm talking to an audience who lives in a democracy uh, with well-established rule of law. But I know we have a lot of international students who come through and they live in very different settings. I'm trying to apply these principles to our settings, but the applications may be different in different settings. I acknowledge that. But when we look at this question, should a government ever be overthrown, I think basically the answer is yes. It's, it, it, yes, from time to time. We would not exist as a nation, sovereign nation, United States of America, if godly people hadn't gotten together and said, it's time to overthrow the government. It's time to overthrow the British crown and its rulership over us. If you had been living in that day and age, would you have joined the revolution? I want to challenge you to think about that. Was the basis for the American Revolution, was it godly? You know, it's interesting because pastors were a lot more involved in social issues in that day, and they were uh, pretty evenly split to rebel against the government or to remain loyal to the crown. And they searched the scriptures, and they wrote, and they debated, and they prayed, and godly people got together, and they wrestled with this issue for years. And so my simple exhortation to you would be, don't try to overthrow a government alone. (laughs) give it a lot of time a lot of thought a lot of conversation but I would challenge you to think about our own revolution think about our own overthrow of the British government was there biblical mandate for that it's an interesting issue to wrestle through I think the Nazi government is a little more clear case in point where you saw in fact much of the rest of the free world rose up in rebellion against that particular government as it was oppressing its people, as it was oppressing uh, the Jewish people in particular. And they acknowledged this government must go. It cannot be reformed. And so from time to time, God does call his people to rise up in rebellion. But after much thought and much prayer, because the basic principle, and again, Paul is talking about how things ought to work. God has placed government over us. And that is a gift to us because we need authority over us. Authority is a protection for us. Should it ever be an overthrown on a massive scale? Well, yeah, probably so from time to time. But governments are placed by God for a purpose, and that is this, to promote good and to punish evil. Do they always do their job well and wisely and perfectly? No, they don't. But this is what they're designed for. Read with me chapter 13, verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. Most of the time. But for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will receive praise from the same. For government is a minister. Literally, that's the word for for deacon. They're, They're a servant of God to you for good. 
But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, which is a metaphor for punishment for evil. For again, it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. This is the primary function of human government, to to punish evil and to praise or reward good so that it creates stability in a society. This is what government is supposed to do. First illustration of this, I think, is from Genesis chapter 9. It says, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. I think this is the first illustration of God ordaining human government. What God is speaking against is an individual taking revenge for himself. But instead, mankind is responsible to punish evil. Remember a couple weeks ago, said Paul says to us, don't take your own vengeance. And that word for vengeance is literally a seeking out of justice. Don't go get your own justice when you are personally wrong. Well, if I don't get my own justice, where will it come from? Government. Okay? On a societal level, when people are being oppressed and wronged, it should be government who steps in and creates order and structure within the society and righteousness. God has placed governments to create a righteous society. Does it always work? No, it doesn't. It doesn't, but that is ultimately the design and the function of God for government. Now notice with me his summary in chapter 13, verse 5. He says, Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only for the sake of wrath, that is, punishment for wrongdoing, but also for conscience' sake, by which he means the knowledge that God has placed human governments over us. Okay, those are the two primary motivations. Because authority is ordained by God, and because governments exist to promote good and punish evil. That's the theory. How do we practice it? Let me, let me give you a few applications before we leave this morning. First, obey the law. <laughs> Simply put, obey the law. I'll give you three illustrations. Don't break the speed limit. Uh, you know, I've noticed that now that I have kids, it is, it's just so much more difficult for me to rationalize four or five or six miles over. <laughs> I, I just, I can't rationalize it anymore. You know, I used to try to rationalize it by saying, you know, well, everyone around me is driving faster. Then I think, what are you, in junior high? You know, <laughs> just because everybody around you is driving faster, you should drive faster. I just have a hard time now explaining to my kids why it's okay Because the cop probably won't stop me. He'll look for the person going 10 miles over so I can go five or six. I I just can't, can't figure out a really godly rationalization now that I have kids asking me that question. It's a little more transparent. Obey the law. It says 55, I go 55. If you're under 21, don't drink. It's the law. Pay for your downloads. Pay for your downloads. If you're downloading a movie, you're downloading music and it's copyrighted, pay for it. Software, pay for it. Okay? Even as Christians, I, I hear discussions and we, we, we bend. We try to bend just a little bit here and there. Why should we obey the law? Because we are to be an example of righteousness to the world. Okay? It's not about getting to our destination just a little bit faster. It's about being a manifestation of the very righteous character of God. And one way we do that is we obey. Second, pay your taxes. <laughs> Paul gives it, this is his illustration, verse 6. He says, for because of this, because of the role and responsibility of government, you also pay taxes, for their rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom. 
But Brian, our taxes are too high. Man, I agree. I agree. I, they're just way too high. I hate taxation. But you know, it's interesting. Taxation is a biblically ordained concept. God appoints government. And how does government function? Through taxes. Are they spending too much right now? <laughs> I think so, yeah. Well, yeah, I sure do. I think so. So should we not pay? No, we should still pay. It's still the law of the land. So get to the voting booth and vote for people that you think spend the money more wisely or spend less or however you think you know, is, is proper for tax policy. But pay your taxes. Well, Brian, they're using my taxes for things that I don't agree with. I agree, they are. So should we not pay then? Let's back up and see if we can find a biblical illustration for this. In Jesus' day, who was the Caesar? It was Augustus, also known as Octavian. Not really a righteous man. Okay, Not really a righteous man. So what did Jesus say? He was questioned on this. Let's trip him up. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar since he's so immoral or not? Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In other words, can we talk about something that's really more important? So I will say, Christians, I think, opinion here, just opinion, I think that what's most important to God about what's going on in our country is not tax policy. I think it's probably uh, maybe the state of marriage and the definition of marriage. Some issues like that are probably deeper to the heart of God. Um, Probably... uh, crime and the breakdown of of cultures within our community. I I think some of these things, uh, in other words, uh, the deep things of righteousness, read the Sermon on the Mount, okay, not just some of these external things. Uh, I have definite opinions, you know, my my undergrad was in economics, so I have definite opinions on tax policy. Don't get me wrong, I got opinions, I got opinions on everything, but (laughs) I'm just saying that I'm not convinced that what's most burning on the heart of God as he looks out on our culture is tax policy, and I think that's kind of what's illustrated by Jesus' statement. Just, just pay your tax. Now go, go vote. Okay, this is going to be my next application for you. Model excellent citizenship. And one of the ways we demonstrate the righteousness of God through our lives is we live as really, really good citizens. Notice what he says here, the second half of verse 7. Uh, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom or, or fees to whom fees, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. In other words, give honor and respect. I have felt very convicted about this again with my kids and how I speak of governing officials. We should speak, even when we disagree with a policy or decision, we should speak respectfully. Christians, we should honor the authorities that are in our lives. We don't hardly ever know their motives, so don't speak about their motives. Don't try to impugn their motives. You can disagree with decisions and policies and so forth, but even as you do, do so in a respectful manner. That kind of honor and respect is completely lacking, it seems to me, in the the dialogue that's going on, the rhetoric that we see on a national level right now. And it doesn't reflect the righteousness of God. 1 Timothy, Paul wrote, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions of authority. Okay? What our kids should hear from us parents is our prayers for these people. Uh, that they know Jesus Christ first. 
that they make good and wise and godly decisions. They should hear us pleading with God for them and praying for them rather than griping and moaning and complaining all the time about them. And I confess, <laughs> guilty of that. Okay? Second, participate in government. Because we live in a culture in which we can participate as Christians, we should participate. At the very least, vote. Okay? vote. And, and again, search the scripture because I believe that the scripture addresses all values that happen, uh, decisions that occur within a culture. What is a biblical hierarchy of issues? Is God as concerned with you know, the flat tax or 999 or, you know, or whatever? Or, or is he concerned about issues of, of marriage and the health of the family and, and society? You know, what, what is God most concerned about? And let's, let's vote. Let's get out there. Let's participate. I think that it's important as Christians that we be known first by our friends and our families and our neighbors as Christians before we're known as Republicans, Democrats, or Independents. Okay? But vote, participate. God may call you to get into government, to hold an office, to help establish a righteous rule in your community, maybe at the state level, maybe at the national level. God may call you into that so that you can demonstrate the righteousness of Christ in that arena. But I want to remind us as a church Our ultimate goal and our ultimate hope as Christians is not to create the perfect human government. That's not what we're about. If God calls you into government, he is calling you in first to personally be righteous and reflect Christ. To use that platform to reflect the righteousness of Christ. To draw people to Christ. Because if we give people a great human government, but they never know Jesus, we have failed. So, Our first calling is to reflect Christ. That is true if you are a professor or a doctor or a lawyer or a business owner. Your first calling is not what you do on your job, but what you do through your job through Jesus Christ. And God has given you skills and aptitudes and desires, things that you love to do, so that doing the things that you love to do and the things that you do well, you can reflect Christ. We are first and foremost Christians. And our great hope as Christians is not a perfect human government, but the return of Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, who will establish righteousness throughout all the earth. And that's what we live for, and that's what we're longing for. Okay? Therefore, Paul says, be excellent citizens in the way that you submit to government, in the way that you honor government, so that you can reflect the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this really challenging reminder from Paul. And I pray, Father, that we would learn to walk wisely with our governing authorities, that we would show honor and respect. I pray, Father, particularly as we move throughout our community and we interact with a university that is a secular school, as we parent children and we we try to pass on honor and respect, as we operate our businesses or teach in classes, that we would demonstrate an attitude that is respectful and submissive even when we disagree, especially when we disagree. Father, I pray that our first and and highest sense of calling would be that we're called to be like Jesus and radiate him in the world. It's in Christ's precious and powerful name we pray. Amen. Uh, Before you leave, I just want to say congratulations to our seniors who are graduating. Parents, glad you could be here for graduation weekend. And then also, uh, happy Mother's Day. If you forgot, go home and call your mother. All right. Have a great day.